When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, another installment of our Books in Dark Times series. So I'm John Plotz and my guest today is David Plotz. David, I didn't even write an introduction for you because how do you begin to introduce the uh, inimitable David Plotz? Uh, I am, let's see, I'm taller than you. Yes. I am. Correct so far. I host a podcast for Slate called the Slate Political Gap Fest that I hope your yep. listeners will give a chance to. Um, and you've written two fantastic books, plus perhaps also some bad books. <laughs> I've not written two fantastic books. Yes, you have. <laughs> I've written two books. You, you blogged one the was Bible. Good. Before one anyone who blogged the Bible, you blogged the Bible. That is true. And you wrote an amazing book about sperm banks, which is frequently cited by my many friends who use sperm banks. So That is good for them. And I was until earlier this month, the CEO of a company called Atlas Obscura. Yes. It's all about the world's hidden wonders. We love Atlas Obscura. There's nobody, nobody, nobody wants to visit a world's hidden wonder right today, but That's you will. True. Well, yeah. actually all the world's wonders are hidden at this exact moment. So all the better reason to go to Atlas Obscura and check out um, wonders that you will never get to visit. Um, all right. So David, you know, it, it's crazy that I would be sitting here talking with you about your reading because, you know, since we were children, we have known what one another was reading since we shared a bedroom for so long. So I know all about you and the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And I think you you were the first person um, in our, you were the first child in our house to read Charles Dickens, which I could not bring myself to do. And here I am a Victorian literature person. Do, am I not right about that? I think you loved Tale of Two Cities when I was a kid. I think I remember that. I don't think that's right. I think our father, Pa, as I like to call him, yeah, and I read David Copperfield to each other. David Copperfield. Very okay. much younger than I remember. I yeah. think I, we, I was 10, and uh -huh. I loved it, and it stuck yeah. with me. And But I don't know why you weren't there. Why you wouldn't be um, there, you just read in the well, living room. If I was 13, you know the answer to that. I was just off being a jerk somewhere. You know, I was probably up in my room playing D&D. &D. 
with myself. Um, that is possible. Yeah. Uh, and, I remember yeah. a lot of reading alouds. I remember The Hobbit vividly. Um, we did Pride I, and Prejudice aloud. Yes. I don't know if you were there for that. Wasn't there a Huck Finn also? Because I did that with my kids. And when I did, I feel like it triggered a memory. I do not or remember Tom that. Tom Sawyer. I think it was Tom Sawyer, actually. Have anyway. I asked you my Huck Finn question? Uh, you did ask me your Huck Finn question, but go ahead, ask our listeners your Huck Finn question. Here's my Huck question, Huck Finn. Uh, recall this book listeners who, are, who may know the answer because you're so well-read and, and follow what's happening. It is my suspicion that Huck Finn has quietly vanished from school curricula and that no one has noticed it or no one has reported on it, but that it is, it is. And it also school auditoria and school stadia. School, yes. Yeah. Okay. Condominia. Yeah. Okay. So yes. Occupy. Occupy. <laughs> Don't say occupy. That's not okay. So yes, it's vanished. It's quietly vanished. It's quietly vanished. Not in the way that in the eighties when people would protest it, because of course it has this language that is, that is uh, so difficult for people but rather that schools have just decided, well, you know what, rather than deal with it, yeah. cause controversy or, or make people upset, we're just gonna make this book vanish. Yeah. And that's, it's just my guess, because none of my kids have read it in yeah. their schools. And I just have a theory that maybe this is a widespread thing and no one has noticed it because it's, it's hard to notice when something disappears. Yeah, uh, well, I really hope you're wrong, but it is true, you know, Elizabeth, my co-host and I taught it for uh, anthropology and fiction class we taught together a few years ago. And um, definitely not everybody had read it. I think the majority of our students had read it, but then they were upperclassmen. So, man, I hope you're wrong, but you might be right. So that's a good one to think about in terms of comfort books. Um, is that the kind of book you're reading now, DP, when, you, when you're trying to um, de-pandemicize yourself? Like, would you consider reading Huck Finn? Yeah, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. Dickens has occurred to me. Dickens yeah. seems to occupy that space of being fully absorbing, a whole other world of being totally very entertaining. Right. Uh, and so I'm I'm very tempted by Dickens, although I haven't read any Dickens. Yeah. And uh, my friend Steve McCauley, who we just recorded yesterday, he uh, Little Dorrit was what he picked up immediately. So, yeah. I uh, I hadn't thought about Huck Finn. I haven't read Huck Finn in. 35 years so yeah maybe i should yes but but okay well but can you continue your point about the fully realized worlds so yes that, yeah uh well i don't know that that's everything that i'm looking for that is something that is that is very tempting um mm -hmm. i the books that that so far have really called to me one is and i don't know why oh I'll, let me let me posit why is yeah. the Guns of August I'm reading? Yes. Barbara Tuckman. Barbara Tuckman. History of the beginning of World War One. Right. And I started it right as this all started to happen, and it, I think I I got it because I had just seen 1917, and I had listened to this wonderful Dan Carlin podcast about mm -hmm. about World War One. So I was in a World War One Jones. Yeah. But what is appealing about this book is that it is. Uh, it's about a set of people who are making some really terrible decisions yeah. and the decisions that they don't quite recognize are going to destroy the world that they live in. Okay. 
All right. And, Stop right now. But, but okay, it's, yeah, but sure. it's not, it's not the ones that we're facing, yeah. but it is the, from history. You can look back and see like, oh man, these people didn't realize it. They, they locked into theories about how the world would work, about how war would work, about yeah. how people would behave that were, that were just theories. And then when, when the war came and when reality hit them, right. they were not able to adjust that, that theory to the reality and right. something rhymes in that today. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. not, but it's not, the, it doesn't, it's, I'm, I'm assiduously avoiding pandemic -y kinds of books. So I know. So station 11, which is one of my favorite books that I've read in the past 10 years, I would yeah. not go and reread yeah. the road. I, I couldn't yeah. go and look There's at no way. before I get to the more pleasurable books that I'm reading or thinking about reading, I just want to mention one other book that is that really speaks to the moment, which some of you may not have the stomach to read, but I actually found very inspiring. And it's a book called This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City by John Mualem, M-O-O-A-L-L-E-M. -L -L -E mm. And it is a book about the Great Alaska Earthquake of 1964, which is the second most powerful earthquake ever recorded most powerful earthquake ever recorded in the U.S., uh -huh. and it destroyed the city of Anchorage, which was then the very new city. Yeah, Alaska had just become a state, yeah. and the city was basically taken down to the studs by the earthquake, and yet a very small number of people died. And it's the story of what happened during the earthquake, how the people in the city responded, how they self-organized a recovery, uh, and and why they were why they were so able to come together as a community and work together and so uh, take care of each other so well in the period after the disaster and it's super inspiring and it has this it has this this point that in disasters like this everything life becomes molten everything melts all this sort of solid melts mm -hmm. and then it reforms in some other way mm -hmm. which is not what you expected it's not what you knew it's not what you were planning for but it reforms and that if we are there to support each other and if people feel a sense of togetherness that this kind of disaster uh is is something you can recover from i think he he points out that a couple of things one is that during the recovery from the earthquake, those people mm -hmm. who didn't who didn't lose who didn't immediately have people who died, uh, loved ones who died, mm -hmm. re report high levels of happiness and satisfaction. Mm. They they actually were extremely happy. Mm -hmm. They felt a sense of purpose and belonging and togetherness mm -hmm. uh, that that really mattered and stayed with them for the rest of their life. It didn't last. It doesn't last for a long time, but it lasted right. for a, a short time. And on the other hand, that pandemics, unlike earthquakes, uh, are distancing. That pandemics separate people because the way you treat them is to get away from other people. Is to get away from them, right? And but but David, also, but follow up on the liquidity point. Was the liquidity just in the moment? Everything could potentially seem new briefly and then it returned to its old ways or things actually changed in the city? No, things actually changed. That things crumble, they melt or they crumble. 
you yeah. know, the metaphor varies from time to time. And then you rebuild and you rebuild either the metal reforms in some other way when it right. cools down or you rebuild in some, something different. It doesn't, it is not the same thing. It is new. You are fully new. You are new. You're a new community. You are new people. The way you, what you're doing is different. Everyone right. he writes about in this book, their life is fundamentally changed by this earthquake. Right. Not necessarily they had different careers or anything like that, but that, that it is this moment which breaks some set of habits, some set of way you live and presents a new opportunity. And for many of people, that new opportunity is worse. And for many, it's right. much better. And it's, it's just different. And you just have to accept that. And as a person who is, who, who's only learning to live with uncertainty now in my life, it was really interesting. As somebody who's, who's going through a divorce, it was, I found it very, uh, it spoke to me a lot because it is this, th when your fundamental premises have been altered, you have to, have to live anew in the world. And that's what this pandemic is going to do on a grand scale to us too. And right. so I found this, this book has just made me think a lot about it and in, and in not in a despairing way, in a way that was made me think, okay, there are possibilities, there are ways that's, that it's going to make us bring us together, make us richer together. So let's right. try to find those ways. I love that. I just love the structure of letting people's lives emerge so that you can glimpse them, you know, five years down the road, 10 years right. down the road. Like, right. You, you and I both love that Isabel Wilkerson book, right? Uh, Warmth of Other Suns. You found I that? did not read that. Oh my God, I love that so much. I know you. I know that Common Ground is like one of your Bibles, but to me, like Warmth of Other Suns is like what if you take Common Ground but you put it on the move, so you know that it's uh -huh. about three. It's about three cities, not one city. Uh -huh. It's not about even about three cities, but three migration paths rather than one one world. But yeah. Huh. Anyway, maybe I'll read that. I, I have. Oh my God, I I love it. It is a, such a. It's such an uplifting book. Um, in terms of thinking, I mean, not because it makes you think, oh, racism in America is uh, easily overcomable by the migration, but it does make you see that the structural racism of the United States is, you know, absolutely there, has deep historical roots, and then has been continued in lots of ways. But also, there have been moments of, of melting, you know, moments where people could actually move themselves and control their own destinies, make economic and vocational and educational and kind of existential choices that change their lives um, for the better. So, yeah. Huh. All right. I, I'm sure it's on my shelf here. I'm looking around for it on my shelf. Yeah. It just look for a book that would hurt you if it fell on your foot because it's an investment. Uh, it's like 950 pages, but. Oh, maybe that's why I didn't read it. Yeah, that, that could well be. And you really need that because it's symphonic. Oh, there it is. I now found it. I started oh. looking for thick books. It's right. It is right ahead of me. <laughs> Straight ahead. Okay. It is pretty thick. Oh my God. Oh my God. I would love, that is a book. That is a comfort book, actually. I think I would re, I think I would reread that right now if I had it sitting on my bookshelf. Um, okay. So go ahead. You were going to go towards, uh, you, you were heading towards more entertaining pastures, I think. Where were you? Well, it was what I'm going to read for, for pleasure. Yeah. What I'm going to read for joy. Yeah. Uh, one, I'm sure I'm going to read some Austin. I'm sure I'm going to read Emma or Sense and Sensibility. Okay. Yep. And you're going to watch Sanditon. 
I will watch Sanditon. We haven't, we're not talking about TV. I, okay, I can yeah, give you so no, many TV examples. Everyone else is talking about TV. Okay, fair enough. We're called this right. book. You're right. Not, we're called not this stream TV. this show. Fine. Okay. I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I might reread Harry Potter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it is so comforting. It's a fully, again, it's this yeah. full world. I know it's going to come out great in the end. Yeah. Makes me happy. It's very familiar. It is quick. It is not going to tax my brain, yeah. and it just is pleasure. And I don't. I I I've spent enough time marinating the other books I would read in that vein, which are much better, of course, are the Pullman books, yeah, his Dark Materials. And I've just spent enough time with them recently that I don't want to read them again. Oh, right. So I wouldn't do that. And the the Narnia books aren't. I don't like very much. And oh really? Hmm. Hmm. Oh yeah, and you don't find Lord of the Rings comforting the way I do. I don't find Lord of the Rings comforting. I find Lord of the Rings thick and boring yeah. and I would make me fall asleep. But uh, here's the funny thing, David. So like the one theme that has already emerged in these conversations is the difference. It, everyone seems to agree that you need something like naughty and dense and complicated that will draw you in and you know keep your mind at work like a really good sudoku you know that equivalent but people seem to disagree on whether the point of it should be this worldly like that is that it returns you to our own you know the the, the world that we all share with a renewed sense of comprehension or purpose or something or whether it's good because it kicks you out into another space but it seems like actually you're trying to have it both ways right because you like guns of august because it makes you, you know, dwell in this world in a different way, but you're, but you're also pushing Harry Potter because it, it, whatever, yes. it's an out, yes. it's an off ramp. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm also looking at a book, which now that I'm looking at, it, I may reread because I found it. It is one of my favorite books and it's so absorbing, which is the killer angels by Michael Shara. Oh my God. That's such a great book. Yeah. Yeah. So why is that? So tell me why you would reread that now. So, so tell people it's about get, the Battle of Gettysburg day it's by about day. about the Battle of Gettysburg told from the perspective of some of the key players. So yes. uh, uh, from Robert E. Lee, his, yes. his second in command, um, uh, Longstreet, James Longstreet, mm -hmm. uh, a, a union major colonel named Joshua Chamberlain, Okay, didn't he become president of Bowdoin Buford. College or something? He became president of Bowdoin College. Yes, yeah. he did. And it is, it's just a very intimate moment by moment account of this yep. battle, which is this yep. critical battle in American history. Yeah. And they, these small decisions that people made that, that shaped the course of the battle. And it's, it's, uh, it takes this thing that we know on a grand scale and makes it extremely yeah. human, extremely yeah. particular. Yeah. So um, we used it when we went to, when we did our uh, history driving tour with our kids when they were very little, we used it. Uh, I mean, I don't think I had the book with me, but we used it at Little Roundtop to reenact the yes. bayonet charge down Little Roundtop. Yes. And I remember our kids just screaming down the hill with fixed bayonets, you know, with no, you know, they'd run out of bullets, but they decided to charge the Confederates instead. And that's the moment that turns the tide. Did they, like, did they win? Did it? Uh, yeah, Lenny and Daria. Yeah, they won. Yeah, they did. All the, all Maybe the you'll time. become president of Bowdoin one day. Maybe yeah. that's your destiny. <laughs> I don't know. I think <laughs> I would, I would, uh, yeah, you've set us something to aspire to. 
Um, okay, well, DP, as usual, I've learned um, a thousand and one things from talking to you, so thank you. This is amazing. Um, I will, oh, let me just read the credits really quickly. I will say, recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Cheslow and Barbara Cassidy. Uh, sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. As you know, we always want to hear from you, and especially now, because we want to hear about your books in dark times. So please um, tweet at us or email us or contact us in any number of ways. And also, please do, if you enjoyed this episode, forward it to others and uh, write a review on or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our other Books in Dark Times conversations with Alex Starr, Carla Rotella, me and Elizabeth Ferry, and I think others to come. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, David. It was a, it was a joy as always. Uh, thank you, Dr. Plotz, Professor Plotz. <laughs> you mean future president of Bowdoin Plotz? Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, all right. Uh, to all of you, farewell.